Welcome to the Safety with Purpose Women in Safety podcast. This is a show that provides a supportive space for women in safety careers. We break down the barriers and provide opportunities for growth. Make sure to hit that subscribe button to be notified of new episodes and join us at safetywithpurpose.com. Now, here's your Women in Safety podcast host, Tamara Paris. Hi, I'm your host, Tamara Paris of the Women in Safety podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Theo Heinemann of One Life Workplace Safety Solutions and Sylvia Marisic of Mind Body Works. We're talking about the impact of stress and fear on achieving workplace wellness and safety. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on the show today. That's so awesome. Thanks for having us. We're glad to be here. I know the two of you are in neuroscience and workplace wellness. So I wanted to kind of understand how did you guys get into this area and how, what makes you want to be so passionate about it? Well, there's two sides of it. So I'm, I'm really passionate about the physical safety side. I grew up on a farm with no brothers. And from the time I was 16 years old, I was custom combining on my own and had lots of experience with machines. I was a paramedic for 10 years. And uh, I watched my dad as an entrepreneur and I was an entrepreneur as well. And so long story short, I got myself into health and safety um, in uh, with my mid thirties and um, probably as a result of seeing the serious incidents as a paramedic, um, but also seeing the risk to entrepreneurs. And so I started, I started our, you know, one life um, from that perspective, just wanting to help small to mid sized business. You know, and that was just looking after physical safety and safety management systems. Two years ago though, my sister, my only sibling, who has worked with me for five years, was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, non-operable, um, and we had no options uh, other than to get prepare for her to, you know, pass away in a few months. So, it's interesting that when you have um, something that monstrous before you, you stop arguing for your limitations and you become open to any possibility and. Uh, we were encouraged to look into a neuroscientist research on spontaneous remission. And I became a student of neuroscience. And when I understood, started to understand how the brain and the nervous system work together and how um, our, our, the stress response can downregulate our genes uh, for disease um, and, and to watch her um, transcend all of the diagnosis um, and totally create her own uh, chart her own course through making her own decisions based on her own research. And two years later, she was no longer stage four. She had shrunk her tumors. Um, she really embraced um, some of the principles of neuroscience. And I saw with my own eyes the difference it made in her health. So uh, unfortunately, she was too far behind the eight ball. Uh, when she was diagnosed, she, she did pass away this summer because of an infection, because she had no immune system after trying chemo. Um, and so I'm, I'm deeply passionate because I said to Sylvia the other day, you know, Somebody else doesn't have to lose their sister. You know, you don't have to get a diagnosis so far behind the eight ball uh, where you have so much to overcome to get better again. So I'm so passionate and I understand now how neuroscience affects safety, affects habits, affects culture, affects incident rates. So sorry, it took so long. No, no, that's <laughs> an amazing journey. Um, so I would say that I came to this by calling. Um, some people would say by accident, but I saw a clinic many, many years ago that was called the Wellness Institute. And I was working as an occupational therapist in inpatient psychiatry, um, and I had worked in every 
um, particular service area that you could imagine in um, physical well-being or physical health as well. So I'd worked on the stroke unit and I'd worked in geriatrics and I'd worked in acute care and cardiovascular thoracic surgery. So all of these different um, places that you could work in healthcare. And my area of strong passion and focus was inpatient psychiatry. And when I saw the Wellness Institute, I said, someday I'm going to work there. And I did eventually end up there and began working with injured workers. And I discovered that there was this whole other component to physical injuries and began feeling frustrated with the inability to treat people in order to get them back to work. And what was the block? Like, what was it that was holding people back from getting better? And I started professionally speaking. Um, my signature keynote was called, it still is called Stressed to Kill. And my focus shifted from treatment to prevention because I understood that that was, you know, we're a mind body, not a mind and a body. So what's underneath every physical symptom or injury is a connection to something emotional or psychological or spiritual that does not um, become immediately apparent. And it re it's reflected in the physical injury. Not that that causes the injury, but it sometimes creates an inability to get past the injury. And I really came to see that our issues live in our tissues and began doing some of the same kind of research that that Theo has done, sort of understanding that mind-body connection and that neuroscience um, influence uh, on our own well-being and our ability to heal and recover. And yeah, so that became my passion. And it's interesting, I was talking to somebody that has spent just a year working in the safety field, taking over somebody's mat leave. And I said to him, you know, how are you going to go back to doing your regular job? And he said, honestly, I don't know, because this is now where my heart is. And that's what happens in the field of safety and well-being. We realize we can make a difference and that people need someone to make a difference to help them see that they can, you know, suffering isn't always mandatory, right? It's optional for many of us. Um, but many, many people don't know it's optional. Right. They have no clue that it's optional. Right. And so once you see that you have the capacity to make a difference in the well-being of others, it is impossible to go back. It's, yeah. So here we are um, just trying to change the world a little bit at a time. You nailed it. I didn't even know for my, from the time I was 16 until 35. I didn't even know anything about health and safety, and I didn't think about wellness, you know, um, my younger self. And it's almost like it's a journey. And I, I appreciate both of you sharing your journey with, our, with us our, and our listeners, because really our podcast is more about a community and sharing about each other. I want to understand from the both of you, because this is your area of expertise, how can productivity, creativity, and profits be directly correlated to the levels of our well-being of our employees in our organizations? Well, that's, that's a very huge question, and it starts by understanding the stress response. So I just want to paraphrase and set the stage that I am personally trained by Dr. Joe Dispenza. I'm one of 80 
corporate trainers in the world that's trained by him and authorized to train his material. So it's not just like I'm coming to this podcast as someone who's read up on this. I've studied deeply um, and for hundreds of hours um, with Dr. Dispenza. So it starts by understanding the stress response. And stress is the pandemic of our time. Mm -hmm. The stress response is living in survival. And the best way to understand it is looking at an animal in survival. So if you have a deer that's grazing in the meadow, all of the energy in that organism, it's in its core. It's, it's the parasympathetic nervous system is turned on and it's the feed and breed system, that's what we would call it. So the organs are all restoring themselves. The stomach, the lining of the stomach is replacing itself. The skin is replacing itself. If, it, if it's growing a baby that, you know, it's doing all those repairs. Um, and it gets wind of a predator, all of a sudden that sympathetic nervous system switches on very quickly and there's a massive surge of energy that gets released from the core and the energy is coming from the core and it's going to the extremities, why? So that animal can run. Um, the, the brain, the blood is going from the forebrain to the hindbrain um, and that animal now becomes very narrow focused. It's focused on its body, it's focused on its environment, and it's focused on time. It's focused on survival. It's not time to stop and, you know, cooperate with the other animals in the forest. It's very selfish. It's very narrow focused. The blood pressure will rise. The arteries will constrict. Um, you know why? So again, because so that animal can have that short-term burst of energy. With the, with the blood going to the hindbrain in that survival brain, that animal is not creative. Um, like I said, it's very narrow focused. And typically in nature, it's going to be over in 15 minutes. Either the animal will outrun the, the wolf or whatever, and it'll go back to grazing, or it becomes lunch. When you look at human beings, living in stress is living in survival. So if they're worried about second mortgages, autocratic leadership, production deadlines, information overload, looking at the news, wondering about the environment, wondering about what the tap to their kids, wondering if they're safe at work. That's a human being that's living in survival and that survival mechanism is turned on. And when you are in survival, that, um, that vital life force, you are drawing from the vital life force, right? To, to, to try and, um, you know, push that body into survival. So again, people have high blood pressure. There's more incidence of heart attack. There's more incidence of stroke. They are not, their brain is not in a creative place. Their brain is more in a survival space. So they're not going to be as creative. They're, they're, they're going to be selfish. And so people will look at another worker and say, well, boy, that worker is really selfish or, or self-aggrandizing or um, self-promoting or, um, or angry or they're harassing. Well, you don't know what's going on with that person. The animal in survival is going to fight. They're going to run or they're going to hide. And a person in the workplace in survival, they're going to fight, they're going to run, or they're going to hide. And so when you understand the stress response, then you ask the question, how does that relate to productivity, creativity, and profits? Well, the person in stress is more likely to make more mistakes. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to have accidents. They're more likely to not cooperate. They're less likely to share information. They're more likely to be far more competitive the corporation in the stress response is more likely to be exploitative. They're going to be focused on profits at any cost. They're not going to be focused on, you know, can we be a conscious business that contributes to our community and actually make a profit both. So I absolutely um, am 
in love. Uh, I don't know what the word is. I am so excited about the new model we're understanding because people are selfish and that's okay. We're designed for self-preservation. That's a good thing. But when you teach people this model that it's in their best interest to transcend those survival hormones, whether it's hormones of judgment or anger or victim or fear, those are all survival hormones. And we also know that those, those emotions are chemistry in the body. And that chemistry and that environment signals the gene to either upregulate for wellness or downregulate for disease. And if it's the survival uh, chemicals running over the long term, that is signaling the body to downregulate for some serious disease. In the short term, it's going to be sick days, it's going to be colds and flus and things like that. So I love this new understanding because now we can have a meaningful conversation with workers and leaders and teach them how to connect their head to their heart and be whole humans and um, whole leaders. That's my take. Hallelujah. Question. <laughs> That's, what, do I, what am I going to add to that? Um, just a couple of things. The reason my business is called Mind Body Works is because you need to understand that the mind and body are one entity, that everything that happens here affects us biochemically in our body and vice versa. And so just further to what Theo said, um, when people are in that parasymp or rather that sympathetic survival mode, one of the biggest impacts on safety is their inability to really use the functions of the forebrain or the, um, the frontal lobe. So that's the problem solving, the troubleshooting, the critical thinking, the planning, the organizing. Those things become really difficult. And you can imagine that when you're in that stress response and somebody comes up to you and says, you know what you should have done? You should have done this, this, this. That worker is just not connecting to that information. They just simply are unable to. The largest studies of the Canadian workforce have been done by a woman by the name of Linda Duxbury, Dr. Linda Duxbury. And one of her findings was really fascinating. She said that, you know, when we look at the Canadian workforce, the average worker is spending 74% of their day in activities related to work. So that means, you know, getting ready for work, commuting to work, being at work, coming home from work, talking about work, planning for work the next day. Now, if that is, and her studies show this as well, that work has been reported by the Canadian workforce as their number one stressor, tied with finances, which usually those things go together. Imagine if you are in the stress response, 74% of your waking hours, 74% of your day in the stress response. Imagine if you are down-regulating for disease, down-regulating the hormones for disease, what the potential risk is there. And so we do see people not showing up to work, absenteeism, presenteeism, but we also see lack of engagement, you know, and we see actually something far more dangerous. We see disengagement. And the workers who are actively disengaged will actually, maybe not consciously, but they will sabotage. They will say, you know, I, I'm not going to do this job or I'm not going to do this work or I'm not going to help so-and-so. I have a critical piece of information. I'm not going to give that to them. And, and it's not that they're, um, they're bad people. They're just living in survival mode. 
And so the cost to the employer becomes massive. And then let's look at recruitment and retention. Everybody knows what it feels like to walk into a place of business, into an insurance company or an office building or a doctor's office, and you have that hit of something really bad is going on in this room right now. It's energy that you're sensing, right? Nobody said anything, but you can just feel you don't want to be in that room. That's how these places feel, these teams feel, these workplaces feel. It's really hard to retain and recruit good workers, which ends up being a hard, a real and hard cost to employers. But here's, and here's the other problem. So when you're in constant survival mode, like over, we already talked about the contraction of the tissue. That's why people have more back pain and more muscle pain. Um, that tissue starts to break down this catabolism of the tissue. But here's the huge problem that people don't even understand is happening. So if you can imagine, you're constantly in that stress response. So 74% of your time, you're in the stress response. And Dispenza's work would, would uh, collaborate with that, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so you're having a stressful thought, right? Well, what about my autocratic leader? Like, I'm, or I'm afraid of production deadlines, or I'm not sure if I'm going to have my job, they're having layoffs, or I'm worried about my kids, or I'm worried about my aging parents, right? So that, those thoughts create chemicals in the body. Mm -hmm. Those chemicals actually symbol, uh, signal the limbic brain, um, and they send a signal from the limbic brain uh, down the spinal cord, lights up the adrenals, the adrenals fire off their chemicals, and which generally reinforces that stressful thought. And the people just keep getting on this, this, this thinking, um, feeling loop. So they have a thought of stress, then they, they feel the, the uh, you know, they have the feeling of stress and then they probably act in a stressed mm -hmm. way. So then they feel they have another thought of stress and then they feel the chemicals and the emotions of stress. And so then they act in a stressful way. So maybe they're short with their kids or whatever. So this is what we need to understand. So people understand if you have the chemical of caffeine in your body over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, what happens? You get addicted to the mm -hmm. caffeine. Mm -hmm. If you have the chemical of nicotine in your body over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, what? You get addicted to the chemical of nicotine. If you have the chemical of stress in your body over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, what happens? You get addicted to stress. And people don't even understand it. They don't even understand they have an addiction. So now they think that that person, in the Joe in the corner is my problem. He makes me angry all the time. He frustrates me all the time. Let's, let's get rid of Joe. Let's fire Joe or send Joe to another department. So they do that. All of a sudden, now the person has to find somebody else to be angry or frustrated with. Why? Because they're addicted to the chemicals of stress. And this is what we need to help people understand from, a, from neurological, neurochemical, um, biological, scientific model that can be shown to people that they don't even know they're in an unconscious program and they're completely unaware um, that they are addicted to the chemicals of stress. And more importantly, they get addicted to a job they don't like, mm -hmm. they get addicted to a supervisor they don't like, or they can get addicted to a mate they don't like. Yes. And they can create the chaos that helps them sure. keep that process going. Right. And so people, uh, and sometimes the language that I've used is default. We default, you know, we look outside and because I'm a negative thinker, I default to, oh, it's gray and it's miserable and it's cold outside. 
which is producing increased levels of cortisol and maybe I'm feeling stressed about that and I'm worrying about the ride home now because it's snowing and now I am downregulating the hormones for disease and illness. Like you're not immediately getting diabetes because you've looked out the window and, and you've had a, an unfavorable reaction, but it's over time. It's this constant hit and it's almost like a slow drain on your life force. And Dr. Bruce Lipton, who's a cellular biologist, and he, was, he would teach the medical students uh, when they were going to school. You know, in his research, he's absolutely found that a negative um, disposition has actually largely contributed to people's depression and, and mental health issues, just their attitude, their mind state, the chemicals that are being created in their body. That's right. it. So if people are interested in this topic, I always say, don't take my word for it. Yeah. You know, I, I will have done my part if I've made people curious enough that they want to go do their own research. So mm -hmm. um, Dr. Bruce Lipton is a great one. You mentioned um, the Canadian doctor. Oh, Dr. Linda Duxbury. Dr. Linda yeah. Duxbury, Dr. Joe Dispenza. Um, there's some great, great researchers. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just a couple of other interesting tie-ins for the employer. Uh, there was a 2012 study, and I apologize, I don't have the reference for it, but a 2012 study looking at uh, the number of accidents that, or the percentage of accidents that took place uh, in workplace accidents that took place in Canada that year. And 80% of those accidents reported in 2012 took place to workers who self-reported that they were stressed at the time of the accident. And we all know that when you are stressed out and preoccupied, you are RIP, I call it, retired in place. You are present, but not really present. The other interesting thing, um, and Theo and I were talking about this just prior to the podcast, you know, when we look at the Canadian statistics, and you can look these up, stress leaves are costing over $50 billion a year to Canadian businesses. Now, we think that's a conservative estimate because and this is not gender stereotyping, so don't anybody get upset about this. But when we look at men versus women, men more often will push their symptoms away until they manifest in something physical like a heart attack. And Theo actually has, did you want to talk about that really interesting article? Well, I, I only noticed it last night. It came across, um, this is very interesting. It came across the newswire last night. Um, that in Greece, they actually, the court ruled that a heart attack that happened at home, they ruled that it was a workplace incident because they looked at all that was going on in this uh, worker's life and the stress that was going on in the workplace. He happened to have the heart attack at home, but they did rule it as a workplace-related incident in Greece. So obviously that's not Canadian case law, but it is case law that you know safety professionals and regulators are going to start to take a look at. Mm -hmm. And I know that employers are probably shuddering to hear this, right? I, I get it. I am an employer. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I love is, you know, we can give a model for employers to do a deep down they want to be given permission to do. And I think especially for men, mm -hmm. uh, again, not, it, it, men are not given permission to lead with their head and their heart. Right. But they, have, they deeply want to. They, they want to be given permission to do that, but it's not acceptable in, in our society. But for them to actually um, take care of their workers and make a hefty profit, there's a deep desire for them to do that. Um, and so I want to bring the logical business statistics and the business case, um, and I want to support both male and female leaders to open their hearts and lead with 
you know, the heart um, has, you know, 10 times the, uh, I don't have the ads, the numbers right in front of me, but it sends 10 times the amount of information to the brain and the brain sends to the heart. Mm -hmm. There's so much wisdom in the heart and we discredit it. Um, so I'm just so excited, Tamara. I'm so thankful to you for giving us this opportunity to talk about this because we need to start this conversation and we need strong women and strong men to have the courage to start talking about a new model for a new future and have courage to, um, you know, lead and speak as a whole being, as a whole person. Mm -hmm. And we can have, we can take care of our people and be profitable. Right. And when we take care, and it's going to be, you know, the companies of the future that are going to thrive are the ones that understand this, that take, you know, take care of their people. And I think what's important for employers to understand is that we're, you know, we're giving these statistics and this information and talking about workplace stress as being, you know, really dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, but the responsibility isn't all on the employer here. The yes. responsibility, we hope, will be a shared responsibility where we each have to take accountability for our own, not just our mental um, health, but just even our well, our general well-being. That is my responsibility. That's not up to my employer. My employer can put a gym in the, in the building, but that has nothing to do with me if I don't take part in that, right? So the employer can have mindfulness training, but if I'm not interested or I'm not participating, that's on me. So what we'd like, what we hope, is that we can help people understand what their own level of accountability is for their well-being, but also that employers who are smart and progressive will understand that by sharing some of this information and maybe shaking up their own culture a little bit to understand this and understand how they and their people can look after themselves better, that there'll be a partnership and a growth that comes from that instead of, oh my God, now this is one more thing I need to do as an employer. I need to take care of everybody's personal stress. And if they're having a fight with their wife, I got to do what when I come to work today? It's not about that. It's about supporting each person's um, accountability for their own well-being. And as an employer, if you can bring some of this information to your people and shift the safety culture to be a safety and wellness culture and support people in their own growth. And maybe instead of having a, a, an incredible reaction to the worker who is, you know, behaviorally, um, you know, perhaps expressing or showing bad behavior at work, instead of dismissing, suspending, you know, all of those things, looking at what's going on here, what's underneath this. And maybe having some, just a, a different level of compassion, understanding with heart and mind what's going on, I think that will make for a better workplace and less feeling of burden on the employer. It is not all up to the employer. No, absolutely. And this is a very important conversation that we start to break open and have. So I'm really glad that, that the both of you were willing to come on and share your, your insights with our community. I, I found one thing that you mentioned was us, the fact that we are animals. And I think a lot of times we forget that fact and we forget about how the physiological elements inside of us act and I didn't know that you could actually be addicted to stress 
So mm -hmm. that's a very interesting learning. On the addiction part, I would just say if it helps people. Um, so the stress response is uh, one of the chemicals that gets produced is adrenaline, amongst other things. So, you know, but, but hopefully people can relate to the fact that if you're constantly producing hits of adrenaline, does it make sense that you might, your body might keep needing those hits, right? So you, some people even create chaos. They'll even create mm -hmm. a crisis because they don't even realize they need a hit. You know, the other thing I'm excited about is training people on this response. I was teaching harassment the other day and we were teaching the stress model, you know, um, how your personality creates your personal reality. You know, it's how you think, how you act and how you feel. When people are in constant fear, constant anxiety, um, you know, again, over time, that's just catabolizing their whole, whole system. Those are survival emotions. And, and you can only be in one of two places. You're either in the survival emotions or you're in the creative emotions. And the survival emotions are below the heart. So um, it's um, control, shame, guilt, anger, fear, lust. Everything below the heart is the survival emotions. Those are drawing from the body's vital life force. Uh, field. If you're drawing from it all the time, you're using it up. Except the problem is your brain is actually in high beta and your brain is all um, disorganized and firing dis and, and in a disorganized way and your heart is incoherent and, and, and firing in a disorganized way. So the head and the heart are all incoherent. The body is, its vital life force is being um, whittled away to little or nothing. Yeah, that person's going to have a massive mental and physical breakdown. Mm -hmm. they're like the animal being chased for not just 15 minutes but for days and weeks and months and years and and now they're diagnosed with some stage four something or other um, and that's when people will get the wake-up call and now they have the courage and the will to say whoa I better I better take a look at myself and take responsibility for my thoughts and my actions and my behavior and my choices and my boundaries um, and start taking care of myself which this one is the best one to talk about the <laughs> self-care, the taking care of. Um, sometimes the opposite happens, uh, though. In, in some cases, people s stay stuck, and I say this with incredible respect, in a victim stance of life where they say, all of my problems are someone else's fault. You know, I'm this way because my dad beat me, or I'm th this way because my mother withheld love from me or I'm this way because my boss is a jerk. But why do they get stuck? Let's talk about that. Yeah, can we, just, can we just talk about that? Okay, so if someone, let's say that someone had an abusive childhood, a lot of people do, abusive childhood. So two things happen. Number one, the child before the age of six or seven does not have really any analytical ability. So you mm -hmm. tell it there's a Santa Claus, the child believes in Santa Claus, correct? Right. So you, you, say things and do things to a child below the age of eight, seven, eight, that make that child feel not good enough and that they're not worthy or they're not smart or they're bad, they don't have analytical ability. And so they, what does a thought do? A thought is a firing and wiring of neurons in the brain. If you have a very short thought, that's gonna, you know, it's, it's you know, what fires together, wires together. If it, if it doesn't keep firing, it's not gonna wire. It's gonna break apart. It's not gonna last. But that child, for days and days and years and years and years and years, it's, it, it, and also it's actually watching its parents, too. It's learning by something called mirror neurons. So it's watching what's happening to the parents. So if the mother is abusing the father or whatever, however that goes, or vice versa, the, parent, the child is learning that, too. Like, oh, if I'm, if I'm a little boy and, you know, 
that's what happens to little boys, you know, they, they have a domineering mother or whatever. So we have to understand what's fired and wired in their brain. Mm-hmm. And that's a long-term memory. And they do that for years and years and years. That is hardwired into their brain, into the belief system that I am not worthy. I am not good enough. I am a victim. I have no control. Right. And not only that, um, even when they start getting an analytical brain, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, they start getting, but they're still at the effect of that hardwired neurological network of neurons in their brain. And they have no idea. So it's like if you can imagine a mountain and you have water running down a mountain, initially it's going to make a little track. And if that water keeps running down the mountain for days and days and weeks and weeks and years and years, you're going to have a big, big crevice, a big, big track. It's going to be big. And now if you want to try and reroute that water, it's going to take a lot of effort. You're going to have to dig. You're going to have to fill in that old um, gully and you're going to have to dig a new gully. So this is why people get stuck in the addiction of victim or not good enough or hopelessness or powerless or power over or anger because their brain is fired and wired and that's, they don't know any different. And most of that's happening at an unconscious level, like 95% of who we are by the time we're 35, a set of unconscious emotions, hardwired belief systems, et cetera. So now you're in the workplace and you bring Sylvia in or Theo in and we're trying to change people and we wonder why it doesn't work. You can't not change people with an eight-hour talk. You can't. You have to give them the model for change and you can, there's many ways to do it, but one of them is based in, in you know, is in neuroscience. But I just want to mm-hmm. say that. Yes. And employers don't understand why a day-long training doesn't work because you're dealing with somebody who's hardwired into the belief of anger or shame or guilt or rage or, right. or not good enough. So not that work is therapy at all, but necessarily, but if you can give people a model, and so my people all have the model. And I talk to them based on that model and I coach them based on that model. And they, then they go and do their own work. And now I've got a language to speak with them so that when they are, you know, acting from a place of guilt, because they'll do it, um, we'll t- we, we have a model to talk to them about that. And they, they know where that guilt is coming from. And they have a, a way to refire and rewire and recreate the neural network. But it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of effort. And initially it doesn't feel good because it's like somebody coming off crack cocaine. They got to break the emotional addiction. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that. Yeah, it's, no, it's that's a, it's so a, important. It, it's a very deep topic and I'm really passionate because all this superficial fluffy to our training programs, it, it takes far more than that. It takes a skilled facilitator who understand how that brain works. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes, I mean, everything begins with awareness, right? So sometimes the two-hour talk or the eight-hour training allows people to get some awareness of what else is going on. What little lies have they told themselves to keep themselves from doing the hard thing? It's so easy to change your actions, right? Imagine driving down whatever street you're driving down and someone cuts you off. It's really easy to control the action of stopping your car at the next red light, getting out of your car and wrapping your fingers around the throat of the person who cut you off, right? It's easy to stop yourself from doing that, but try stopping the thought that you'd like to right? It's the thoughts that are really hard to change. And so that's, that's, you know, partially what Theo was talking about is getting people to, to understand that they need to 
go deeper than just behavioral change. Like this is going around the internet everywhere right now, uh, Facebook and social media, that self-care is much more than, you know, hot baths with candles and, you know, the scent of lavender. Um, it's, it's understanding the mind-body connection. We're very focused in our society on get enough exercise, eat the right foods, um, you know, relax, um, have the hot bath, and all of those things are really, really important. But what we are not good at is understanding the emotional and spiritual, not spiritual in relation to religion, but the fact that we are a mind-body-spirit. We are not getting to that part. We're not getting to the part of changing you know, how people use their heart and how they fill their heart. Um, work is such a huge part of our identity, and it's where we find value and meaning. For, for many of us, we find value and meaning in our work. And even if you are working in a manufacturing company making widgets, there has to be something about that that you find meaningful and valuable. It might be that it gives you the money to do the things that you want to do with your family. And that's, that's worthwhile. But there has to be some, some meaning and value there, some sense of contributing. Well, and I, for me, the most important thing is just giving power back to the people. Yes. So, you know, people think, well, you know, depression just runs in my family. So I, I'm just destined to go to the doctor and take the pills. Uh, and they're giving their power away to the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and like this is giving the power back to the people, teach them how their body works, teach them how the brain and nervous system works, teach them how they create their own chemicals in their body. Yeah teach them that they can uh, lay boundaries. They're not a victim to their genetics. They're not a victim to their family environment. They can change their brain. They can change their thoughts. If they can change their thought, they can change their timeline. They can change the destiny of their life. Um, and, um, and they can change, you know, going back to workplace safety, you know, yeah. they can change the safety cultures in their workplace. And the same model applies then to safety culture and safety habits. So, you know, if you hire somebody who grew up on the farm and worked there for 40 years, and I was a farmer, so I can say this, you know, we rode in buckets and we didn't tie the ladders off and we didn't have guards on the machines. <laughs> I mean, that's just what we did. Like, that's just how it was. So if you can imagine if they did that for many, many years, that over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, guess what? That's a neurological network in the brain. So now this worker comes in and you can't understand why they're just working really fast and they don't need to put the guards on. Even though this is a policy, they're not following that policy. You just think they're a bad person. You just think they're a jerk. No, where are they coming from? Especially the immigrant workers coming from Philippines and India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. They are bringing their, their belief systems there where, you know, workers aren't valued. I worked in Africa and I saw that, you know, people were expendable. So that's the culture they grow up in. And so now you bring them into Canada and we've got to teach them. We've got to change their brain. We've got to teach. Mm -hmm. It's not like that in Canada. You are valuable. Um, you're worth it. You know, these are procedures. You know, you've got to change those people. But, you know, that's why I love the neuroscience model because if your culture is problematic, why? Well, you got a bunch of people making up your culture with a bunch of belief systems and you got to mm -hmm. change the, you got to change the neurological network, right? Um, if you got bad habits, this is why the habits are going to be a little bit harder to change. You're going to have to stay on people for quite a long time. 
Um, right. you, got, you got a department that's running by anxiety. They're always like last minute shipments and it's going on like that for years. All right, well, there's probably an, addic an addiction going on with that group that we might want to chill them out, chill them down, give mm -hmm. them a model for change. I think um, a couple of things that Theo said I just wanted to jump on. And one is that if you think you can, you can. And if you think you can't, you're right. So we teach people that whatever they believe is, is what their outcome will be. And there's even, I mean, there's something called a nocebo effect. Everyone knows what the placebo effect is. So Theo gets the sugar pill and I get the real pill, but Theo has the same miraculous recovery that I have. Why? Because she believes that what she's taking is going to help her. But the nocebo effect says that if Theo is getting the real pill, but does not believe in it, that it will help her, that it won't. So when people don't believe that they can change their circumstances or they don't believe they have any control or any power, that becomes their reality. And it's the same thing with medicine. So I've had so many people. So part of my, um, of my business is working on site with injured workers. So I go and work where they work. I watch what they do. I teach them different ways. And so often... I will hear people say things like, yeah, my doctor prescribed antidepressants, but I don't want to take them. So here's a surprise. They don't get better. Right? I'm not, we're not promoting or dispromoting medication. It's, you know, people have to make their own decisions about these things. However, if you don't believe the medicine you're taking is going to help you, it's not going to help you. There's no possibility that, that it will help you. So it's interesting that when we look at workers and we see this sense of helplessness and powerlessness, a really interesting byproduct and maybe the most significant byproduct of teaching them how the mind, body, heart works is that they feel more hopeful. That instead of saying, I have no control, I can't change this, they go, oh, Maybe I could change everything. But, but, but I'm also going to say this, and I could get in trouble for it, but, you know, the person that doesn't want to take the antidepressants, like I lived with somebody who was on antidepressants, and I saw the side effects of that. You know, maybe they don't want to take the antidepressants because of all the side effects, right? Right. And here's the other thing. We are now finding out from a scientific, biological, neurological, neurochemical point of view, the biggest pharmaceutical factory in the planet is one's own body. Um, yes. And so I am not a neuroscientist, but I want people to go and do the research, go and do the research, how people are able to um, take care of their own depressiveness, depression, depression. Yeah. Um, they are able to take care of their own depression by regulating their own chemistry. Um, and it has by being taking their brain out of high beta, um, settling it down into alpha, um, bringing up the thoughts of the future they want to create creating those chemicals of their future and and MIT is working with Dr. Joe Dispenza and correlating his data. They've done over um, 8,000 brain scans, 6,000 heart scans. They're getting, they're, they're measuring telomeres and saliva and blood and they're working with neuroscientists and this is no longer um, um, theory. This is hard science. People 
can have a tremendous amount of control over their environment. My sister died because of the medication. She died because of the medical care. Um, and I don't want to be too much of a crazy person, <laughs> um, but I really want to empower people before mm -hmm. they just take a pill, go to your research on what its side effects are and yeah. understand that you are the biggest pharmaceutical system you'll ever have. You're the biggest, we are the biggest creators of our own health. Um, mm -hmm. This, this uh, podcast is too short to get into all, all those ways. And there's many paths. There's not just one path. Um, but please, people who are listening, please, please go and find out how incredible, um, how incredibly powerful we are um, mm -hmm. because the planet needs powerful people. Right now, we are in trouble because people think they are powerless and they're giving their power away to governments and greater authorities. We are the authority. Uh, we, the collective, are the authority. And when the collective gets uh, un united enough, um, we are going to change the future for the young people of this planet. And I'm very hopeful about that. And I understand that I'm being very uh, out there, but um, it's, it's going to be us that's going to make us happen, it happen as collective people. It's not going to be governments. It's going to be the people. Um, and we have to be awakening to um, the effect that we can actually have in our environment. Absolutely. We are spectacular at creating disease and symptoms and suffering. And we don't realize that we can actually create the opposite. Create wellness, yes. Yeah. And health and safety and a safe work environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Now, we are getting to the end of our time, but I did have one or two more questions I wanted to ask. And one was around some practical tip for the health and safety professional. Mitigation of stress is going to be a core component of a healthy and productive workforce mm -hmm. as we move forward. We see it coming. So what are some suggestions and tips that you can provide our listeners to help them with their teams? Well, one of the things that um, research has shown is that, and this is again, going back to Linda Duxbury, people leave, so, so Canadians report that work is their number one stressor and people leave a job. And by leaving a job, I mean calling in sick, actually, you know, quitting, going off on a leave, or being present, but not doing their job. Those are all different manifestations of leaving a job. And they leave because of one reason, and that is the, pe the people, in particular, the leader or perceived leader. Now, there's a very big difference between being a leader and being a perceived leader. The perceived leader is the one with the powerful personality. We often think of them as being the negative Nelly or the negative Ned. You don't necessarily have to be either gender or any gender. Um, so, so what that tells us, what that research tells us, is that it's the relationships that cause the biggest stress. It's often not the work. It's not the workload. It's not even the work environment. You know, the fact that you don't have an ergonomic desk, desk is is so small in comparison to the fact that you have asked for it four times and been dismissed or not heard. That's the issue, right? It's and being I, dismissed that's the issue. Right. So, so I think the number one, or let's just say one of the number one things we need to work on is the relationships. We need to have people in safety who give a crap about the worker. And then, so the question was, how do we help safety professionals, right, with their teams? So, yes. 
you know, even when I was at CSSC many years ago, they had all these leaders at our national conference, you know, leaders of major companies. And they said, what's the number one competency that will be needed going forward for safety professionals? And they said it's their communication, their leadership skills. They didn't say it was technical skills. Right. Communication and leadership skills. So I think that's really important. So that's all well and fine. But then you're, you have all these human beings and these people with all the different personalities, their histories, their, their ways mm -hmm. of being. So that's part A. Mm -hmm. Part A is what Sylvia said. But part B is I really believe that people need to understand how the brain and the nervous system work, how beliefs work how habits work, mm -hmm. how, how you can help people. I'll give you a little story. We do mindfulness practice at One Life. And uh, typically, we'll do it at a certain time. Course leader, I'm leading it to make sure it was happening. But if I didn't do it, it wasn't happening, right? So I had to lead, you know? So this one day, I was on the road for my meeting, and I couldn't be here in person. And so at the end of our meeting, they said, Theo, are we still doing our mindfulness practice? Because I wasn't in the room. And I said, well, I don't know, are you? And they said, well, I don't think we have time. There's lots going on. Like, uh, there's just so much to do. And I said, okay, well, then mm, tell me, where is your brain right now? How's your brain working? Because they understand the model. I, I, I said, where, is your, where are your brainwave patterns right now? And they go, hi, beta. I said, yeah, okay, so tell me how it's going to be working. How creative are you going to be today? How, how good are you going to be at solving problems today? Mm -hmm. And they said to me, well, not very good. I said, oh, well, so I'm going to ask you again, like, do you guys want to do your mindfulness practice? Like, it's like totally their choice, right? So, so they went and did their mindfulness practice. But I could not have that conversation with them if there hadn't been some training and if they didn't understand right. how their own nervous system works. And that, yeah, there's a part of them that's kind of addicted to the stress and doesn't want to settle their brain down. And they just want to get to work. But they totally do understand that if they will have the discipline – it's like having discipline to going, going to the gym. You know, you don't want to go to the gym. It's like, oh, I don't want to get off the couch. You know, I just feel so good to stay at home. But after you're done the gym, you feel amazing, right? It's like, why don't I do that more often? So they know that. Like, there's part of them that's like, oh, you know, we're just kind of indulging this part of us. It's a little feeling a little anxious today. But they know from a biological, neurological, neurochemical point of view the benefit to them. Yes. So it gives a language to speak. And so there's many ways to approach this. Uh, I would just encourage safety managers and leaders, go get some hard science. We need hard science for the logical people. Get hard science. Um, learn somebody's system so that you can speak a language that makes sense, that's based in solid science and help people to overcome themselves so they can be free to have a joyful, happy, productive, safe, well life. And when they do that, they're going to contribute to their children, their communities and the world. And, you know, we're together going to solve some of the challenges that we face. Mm -hmm. It really is a partnership, right? It's, 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 you know, we want leaders to communicate from their heart and be more effective um, leaders, but we also need workers to take some accountability for their own well-being, and we need to bring awareness to them. And as employers, those employers who are willing to help their workers become more aware of what's going on and what the neuroscience says. I mean, this is science, right? This is stuff they can read, stuff they can learn about. The more awareness that employers can bring to their employees, I mean, there's, there's no possibility 
that this is going to make for a worse workplace, right? The, the people who aren't getting it and who don't want to be involved will naturally migrate out because but, they're not comfortable with this. And this is a hot top. And for some places, it is a work. It is a problem because this is how you create powerful people. And not every leader wants their workers to be that powerful. Lots of leaders still want power over their workers. That's okay. the old model. But those leaders, they're going to have long-term consequences. So it's, mm -hmm. I would just, I'm just going to be courageous yeah. and say that not everybody wants to liberate their workers and have them feel that powerful. Yeah. But that's really so, an important part of this, right? If we want to get to this better level. And yeah, you're absolutely right. There are sometimes leaders that don't want to empower their workforce um, for, for whatever reasons they have. However, I do see a trend of more workers wanting a healthier lifestyle, grasping wellness, grasping mindfulness. You know, even, even I have started to do meditation and taking that, that moment just to, to calm my thoughts. Yeah. And then you have a more tranquil day and you are more creative. So we are getting there. Now, I know that we're coming to the end of our show, but before we close out our discussion, I really wanted you to share with our listeners the most important piece of advice that you want them to go away from our conversation having today. Um, I have one sentence. Um, if we are exceptional at creating disease and illness, which shows up in our workplaces as symptoms, sick time, um, lack of attention to detail, injuries, all of that kind of stuff, if we understand that we are exceptional at creating those things, then we must also understand that we can be, we can learn to be exceptional at creating health, well-being, wellness, and a safe culture. Mine would be the, the knowing and the permission to know that it's our, our birthright to live in creation, not in survival. Mm -hmm. You know, we're conditioned by the media, by the by everything going on that we're supposed, you know, survival just becomes a way of being that is not the birthright um, of hu the human race. Um, we are, we are, we are destined um, to live in the hormones of creation, compassion, kindness, wellness, hopefulness, joyfulness. Um, but we have to claim it. We have to choose it. And in a world where it's not quite the norm just yet, you know, we have to have the conscious attention and awareness to choose it in every moment. And over time, just like stress is a habit, wellness can become a habit. Mm. If illness and stress is contagious, so is wellness and joy. It's contagious. And as more and more people understand that they can master their own brain and nervous system to create wellness and upregulate their genetics for long-term viability, um, it's going to be um, it can also spread. It can also be uh, contagious. So that would be my thought. That's perfect. And <laughs> safety can also be contagious. Safety yeah. and wellness can be contagious, just like incidents and, and, and wellness. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It was a phenomenal conversation. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Tamara. Thank you for the work that you're doing and your leadership with women in safety. We really appreciate yes. it. And we need you. Yes. Oh. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Take care. Take care. 
that concludes my conversation with Theo Heinemann and Sylvia Marisic. We hope you found this episode informative. If you're looking for more information, see our show notes at safetywithpurpose.com backslash women in safety. And if you're looking for some great safety resources to share out with your team, head on over to safepedia.com where you'll find many safety resources in the form of quizzes, webinars, articles, Q&As. We have new resources every week. Until next time, stay safe. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the Women in Safety podcast. Thank you for clicking the subscribe button and sharing it with others. Make sure to visit us at safetywithpurpose.com for more safety leadership and industry discussions. 